I can see it now. Tommy started acting up. She just started reciting First Timothy 3. <laughs> Praise God. Praise God. Hey, beloved, you realize we have just memorized half of First Timothy? Praise the Lord. We worked our way through half the book. Come on. Not too late for folks to start joining us in memorizing uh, the scripture. We'll work our way through the book, memorizing about a paragraph at a time. So jump in, get as much as, as you can. Uh, every bit you memorize counts, right? So hide God's word uh, in your hearts. Well, let me pray this morning and we'll turn to God's word. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would be with us now to speak to us by your word. Give us understanding of your word so that we do not err. Help us to love the truth so that we remember what we see in your word and what we hear um, from your word. And uh, give us grace to be faithful, to obey it, Lord. Uh, we love you. And because we love you, we love your word where we get to know you better. Uh, so teach us about yourself. Teach us about ourselves. Teach us about the hope that we have in Christ, we pray. Speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, beloved, we are continuing our study in the book of 1 Timothy, a, a sermon series that we've called Instructions for the Church. Uh, if you've been coming along these last several weeks, you know that we began this series in 1 Timothy um, really because in many respects, the pandemic has had us kind of out of shape as a church, not just us, but the church in general. Uh, out of shape in terms of meeting, out of shape in terms of fellowshipping with each other. Uh, all the things were suspended. And so we thought as we are regathering in person and getting back into the rhythm of our life as a church, we thought, hey, let's go back to the basics. Let's go back to the Bible. Let's go back to God's word to, to know again, to, to learn again what it is to be the church and, and how it is God wants us to, to live together as a church. Now, that was the overarching purpose that brought us to 1 Timothy. But as we've been reading through 1 Timothy, you probably have noticed already that Paul has a concern, as he says in 1 Timothy 3, about the church knowing how to behave in the household of God. But along the way, he's been expressing another concern. He's been concerned about false teachers. And he's been concerned about the effect of false teachers on the church. Now, in chapter 1, look back there with me, around verses 6 and 7, he talks about the sort of mistake the false teachers are making. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have, what, wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So this is their sort of mistake. They are wanting to be teachers, but they don't know what they're talking about. Near the end of chapter 1, around verses 19 and 20, uh, Paul then refers to the effect of these false teachers on themselves, that they have rejected a good conscience, they've rejected faith, and by doing so, they have made shipwreck of their faith. And Paul goes on to name two in particular, um, Hymenaeus and Alexander, who he says he has turned over to Satan so that they learn not to blaspheme. Now, it used to be in um, criminology and, and certain social sciences, uh, a phrase used to be used quite often called victimless crime. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. Victimless, victimless crime is supposedly a crime that's committed, but nobody's really affected by it except the person who commits it, right? So you might think of, uh, they used to talk about gambling that way. 
is a victimless crime. Uh, you might think about the oldest profession uh, as a victimless crime. Both parties are supposedly consenting and nobody's hurt beside themselves. Well, I don't know how useful that is as a category, but I know it does not apply to false teaching. That false teaching in God's church is not a victimless crime. It very much devastates the people of God. And when we come to chapter four, that's what Paul is now looking at. So he talked about the mistake the false teachers made in chapter one, six, and seven. He talked about the effect of their false teaching on their own souls. Now in chapter four, he's coming to the effect of those false teachers on some in the church. And his, his whole aim here is to so instruct church and teach the church that he protects the church and prevents the church from wandering away from Jesus. Right? And that's the whole goal of the sermon this morning. Then we might look at verses one to five and be helped not to wander from Jesus, but to stay close to Jesus. Look with me in 1 Timothy chapter four, verses one to five. Now the spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. As we think about these five short verses, I want us to organize our thoughts in two points. Number one, some people will depart from the faith. Some people will depart from the faith. That's what we see in verse one down to about the middle part of verse four. But number two, some people will enjoy God's good gifts. Some people will enjoy God's good gifts. And the question is, which are we, right? Look with me in, in verses 1 and 3, um, where Paul writes there again, now the Spirit expressly says that in, in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. One of those wonderful, long, run-on sentences from the Apostle Paul. But let's break it down. The main idea very simply is this, that some people are going to depart from the faith. And notice who says this. The Spirit says, right? So this is God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity speaking here. And what we know about the Spirit is this. As John 17 puts it, or John 14, 17 puts it, he's the Spirit of truth. He is God, and God cannot lie. Titus 1 verse, uh, verse 2 says, God never lies. Hebrews 6 verse 18 says, it is impossible for God to lie. So here, here is God, the Holy Spirit, who's not a force, but a person. Forces don't speak. People do. 
And he's speaking to the Apostle Paul, and he speaks through the Scriptures. He's the one who inspires the Scripture. Um, he, he moved even the Lord Jesus to speak this very same truth in, in the Gospels, that in the end, some people would depart from the faith. So when the Spirit expressly says, it means that God has said this thing clearly, directly, and truthfully, plainly. If God speaks plainly, we, we need to listen plainly. We need to hear clearly. As wonderful as you and I find the Christian faith to be, there's some people going to be like, man, that's all right. I'm done with all that. I'm leaving that alone. Yeah, I used to be a Christian, but you know what? Uh, it don't take all that. There's some people who will start out well who will not finish the race. It's a sobering truth taught throughout the Bible, taught throughout the New Testament. It is a sobering truth that at least seems to me is increasing in our day. Galatians 5 says that such people are severed from Christ, that they fall away from grace. They leave Jesus, they leave the church, and beloved, can I just say a word on this real quick? Because there's some people who say, you know what, I left the church, I didn't leave Jesus. That's possible, but I almost guarantee you, if you leave any church and every church, sooner or later, you're likely to leave Jesus. But this is the place where you hear about Jesus the most. And this is the place where Jesus is meant to be modeled for us. This is the place where Jesus speaks most regularly from his word. You can skip out on church if you want to, but beloved, trust me when I tell you there are many who skipped out on the church who thought they were skipping to Jesus and skipped right into the hands of the enemy. As Romans 1 says, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And their hearts were darkened. So there are some people who go from gathering with the body and obeying Jesus as Lord and witnessing to the world to no longer attending church, no longer living as a Christian, no longer honoring Jesus as the Lord, no longer believing the truth. That's what the Spirit says. Notice how it will happen or when it will happen. It happens, the text says here, in later times. You may have a translation that says latter days or last days. The New Testament writers understood that the later days or the last days actually began in their lifetimes. It began with the resurrection of Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. You remember when the, when the church is gathered in Acts 2 and, and the, the apostles start to speak in tongues uh, and Peter stands up and says, this is what happened according to uh, the prophet Joel. Well, Joel was prophesying about the, the last days and Peter is saying, hey, the last days have broken in on us here. Or the writer to Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 and 2, he says, in former days that God spoke to us by prophets and through visions and dreams and things of this sort. But he says in verse 2, in the last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So the coming of Jesus is the beginning of the last days. The coming of the Spirit and the birth of the church is the beginning of the last days. Paul was living in these later times that he's writing about. We certainly are. We certainly are living in these last days. And notice what these last days are going to be like. So if you 
in the Bible with me, just turn over about two pages to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 9, Paul talks with us about what the last days are like. He says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those men. You see, the picture is not that the world is getting better and better. The world's getting worse and worse in all kinds of ways. And false teachers grow bolder and bolder in their, in their falsehood. And this is the day that we're living in. And you ask yourself the question, well, how does somebody go from worshiping Jesus and being plugged into the church and, and fellowship and serving in various ways? How does someone go from that to departing the faith? Well, he begins to tell us the how back in 1 Timothy 4. Notice at the end of verse 1, by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Now, the word devoting can be translated as following or paying close attention to or even as indulging in. That same word for devoting is used again in verse 13. Let your eyes go down to verse 13 there, where Paul tells Timothy to be devoted to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching or preaching. You see what's happening here. They should have been devoted to God's Word, to the hearing of God's Word, to the encouragement that comes from God's Word, to reading God's Word together in public. But instead now, they have lost that devotion, and they have now indulged in, followed, paid careful attention to the, the deceit of evil spirits and the teaching of demons. Now, I don't think, I don't think anybody wake up one morning and say, you know what, I think I'll listen to a demon today. That's not how that happens. But the problem, notice now, the problem begins first with our devotion. Beloved, where is our devotion this morning? Who or what are we devoted to? Our devotion, I think, is a bigger issue than most Christians realize. I mean, many Christians appear to think we can be devoted to a number of things in addition to Jesus, and everything will be just fine. Yes, they say we, we love Jesus, but we also love politics. 
we, we love Jesus, but we also love money. Yes, they say we are devoted to Jesus, but we are also devoted to our careers or devoted to our businesses or devoted to our families. Or they say, of course, we love Jesus. We also devoted followers of this guru or this leader or this ideology. Every but, every also is a potential idol, beloved. Jesus does not share first place with other people and other commitments. Must be first alone because he is Lord alone. Now, notice now the enemy, because we are talking about spiritual warfare here, the enemy loves to enter in through the window of our devotions, of our loves. Many of the things I just listed career, business, family, those are not bad things, those are good things. And the enemy can exploit good things just as much as he can exploit evil things. And so he enters in through our devotions, through our loves. And and we ask ourselves the question, how do we know what we love? Well, pay attention to who or what you listen to. If Jesus says one thing, but our enjoyments, our appetites, our leaders, our careers, our money says something else, and we listen to those other things, then we're being led astray by the things that we're devoted to. We've been drawn away from the Lord to false gods. Those who turn away from the faith, from the truth about Jesus, from the truth of the scripture, those who turn away from the faith are ultimately, according to this verse, devoting themselves, listening to evil spirits and the teachings of demons. Listen, The Holy Spirit will never come to you and say, don't listen to Jesus. God will never come to you and say, don't worry about that passage of Scripture that you know convicts you. Go ahead and do this anyway. God will never come to you or come to me and give us permission to disregard him. That does not come from the Lord. That comes from the pits of hell. That's a deceitful spirit. That's the the lying teaching of a demon. Anything that would turn us away from Jesus as Lord, would turn us away from his actual rule in our lives, does not come from God. I mean, he tells us in so many places, we can't have it both ways. Can't serve God and mammon. You can't love the world and love him. He's an all or nothing God when it comes to our devotion. And he deserves it all, as we sang a moment ago. Now, those who turn away from faith, as I said, are ultimately devoting themselves to evil spirits and the teachings of demons. Now, again, very few people wake up and say, you know what, I'm going to check out the demons today. I wonder what they're doing online. You know, follow them on Twitter. Here's what we have to remember. Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. That's what Paul tells us in Corinthians. And his prophets, they often pretend to be God's prophets and to tell people what they want to hear instead of the truth. 
So many examples. I'm, I'm going to give you a couple. You can, you can read them at length if you want to. First Kings 22, verses 20 to 23. King Ahab is on the throne, doesn't love God, going his own way. He's surrounded by false prophets who tell him what he wants to except for one prophet. And somehow or another, he just keeps calling that prophet to come speak to him. This is, this is what happens in 1 Kings 22, 20 to 23. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, by what means? And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, you are to entice him, and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. The striking example, isn't it? Being surrounded by so-called prophets who are speaking and animated by a lying spirit. We see the same thing in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 to 12. The Apostle Paul says there, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And what you get from these texts is, yes, there are lying spirits, there are deceitful spirits, there's the teaching of demons, but beloved, where that has success, it's also God's judgment on people who refuse to believe the truth, but instead coddle falsehood. And so notice how these evil spirits show up. The next phrase there through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Again, they don't appear, appear as the vile creatures that they are. They appear as human teachers. They appear as prophets and apostles and pastors. They, they appear as folks who are religious and have religious authority. But notice now what's true about them. Two things. They are liars and their consciences are seared. So it's the manipulation, the insincerity, the, the falsehood of liars that bring people in. It's the, it's the almost truth that draws in folks who aren't completely committed to the truth. This is why some of the biggest churches in America, at least, and not just America, but some of the biggest churches in the world are churches where people hold up Bibles and say things about the Bible and open it in their laps, but never preach it. Never preach it. The form of godliness, denying the power of godliness, opening the word and, and taking a phrase and twisting it ever so much so that you're looking at the words on the page, but they've been given a meaning that aren't true. So that, so that people believe false gospels with, with real zeal, with real abandon. And eventually, false teachers say things like this. Any prophet of God in the last 3,000 years could have died for your sins if they had just known to go to the cross. What? It's blasphemy. 
and false and popular. They, they come through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. You know, the conscience is, that's that little voice that God puts inside of each and every one of us that testifies to right and wrong. You get ready to do something and a little voice just pop up in your head, so don't do that. Look around like, somebody in the room with me? God's in the room with you. He's giving you a conscience. He's giving you that voice to pay attention to. This is the right thing to do, the conscience says. Go, go do that or stay away from this. That's a healthy conscience. But you can ignore and resist your conscience. You can, you can distort your conscience. You can teach your conscience things that are not accurate and right. So that you come to believe that black is white and white is black. That truth is false and false is true. That's what's meant here. They have a seared, a cut conscience. That thing that God put inside of all of us so that he is without a witness, that thing that testifies to the law written on the heart, even without the law written on the page, that thing has its voice cut, has its function in our hearts cut. And so now they are people who are so committed to falsehood, they can't tell the difference anymore. They can't tell the difference anymore. I used to get asked all the time, you know, about false teachers, um, do you think they know, right? And the temptation among good people is to go, oh, they're trying to get it right. You know, they're trying to get it right there. You know, some other things over, these things over here are really good. And, and, and so it's cool. I know that's kind of off and we should just pray for them. Wait a minute, beloved. There's some things that someone who proclaims to be a teacher of God's word just has to get right or they should not be teaching God's word. It's not a matter of patience. It's a matter of faithfulness. So when a man tells you that there is no Trinity, that it's the same God who just appeared as the Father at one time, the Son at another time, the Holy Spirit at another time, but there's no Trinity, he errs. He's wrong. It's a damnable heresy. When a man tells you that there's some other way to be saved other than faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, or tells you that Jesus was not crucified on the cross, did not die for your sins, was not resurrected from the grave, we need to pronounce with Paul in Galatians 1.10, anathema. You'd be cursed. Not, oh, he almost got it right. Let's pray for him and encourage him. No, there's some things, beloved, that we have to have a holy intolerance for. Getting God right and the gospel right and the Christian life right, it's one of those things, beloved. Because here's the thing about a hypocritical liar with a seared conscience, he don't care about you. He don't care about you. He cares about the jet. He cares about the bigger house. He cares about the bank account. He cares about being able to boast how many people are in his church. He cares about being able to have a church that has 85 locations in 16 countries. You ain't omnipresent. You ain't God. The people need a pastor. They don't need a TV screen. They don't care about you. They don't care about you. 
That's what this text is saying. He's lost the ability to care about you because he's lost the ability to discern right from wrong. In these last days, from Paul's day, the world is full of false teachers. And we are foolish Christians if we think we can listen to just anybody who's on TV or the radio or who publishes a book. All you need is an internet connection to publish a book today. It would be self-published, unaccountable to anybody. These things ought not be. So we've got to be aware that there are false teachers in the world, and we've got to be aware of what the strategy is. Notice, notice what they do. Notice that next phrase, how they take away Christian freedom and God's good gifts. First Timothy 4, verse 3, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. If a false teacher can get you, on the one hand, to devote yourself to something other than God and can get you on the other hand to reject God's goodness in creation. He's helped you make two or three steps toward departing the faith. So here's, here's what the teachers here are doing in Paul's day. Now, remember what Paul says back in verses 6 and 7. They want to be teachers of the law, but they don't understand what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions, right? So there's some false teachers there in Ephesus who, who want to lay down the law. And, and, and likely, as was the case in many New Testament churches, they're going back to the Old Testament, trying to bring that stuff forward. They're trying to pour, pour old wine or new wine into old wineskins, and it doesn't work. It's not gospel, right? And in, and of course here, I think what they're encouraging is a kind of asceticism, a, a kind of religious approach that's all about denying yourself pleasure as a way of trying to be right with God. So don't marry, right? Don't eat these foods. Don't taste, don't touch. Remember what Paul says over in Colossians 2, verses 20 to 23? And you got these laws, don't taste, don't touch. But those laws are powerless for putting the flesh to death. That's what they major on, is all these laws, all these rules, all these commandments, all these ideas that are restricting, 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 taking away um, the gifts of God, taking from view the goodness of God, so that what you're left with is all of these lumber, this lumber load of rules that weigh you down and that make you self-righteous, but not right with God. They forbid to marry. And how contrary is that to Scripture? It's like the first human institution that God creates. And what does he pronounce? It's good. It's how our first parents and how you and I are meant to fulfill the creation mandate, to, to fill the earth, right, with, with God's glory, to be fruitful and to multiply. That's to come through marriage. And Jesus himself honors marriage, doesn't he? And, and Hebrews tells us that the, the marriage, marriage is meant to be honorable among all. So the whole testimony of the, of the Bible is marriage is good. Now, the testimony of the Bible is singleness is good too, right? So, so this, is not, this is not a law on the other side, thou must get married. 
but it is good. Along with all that God created, along with all the foods that God created. Remember Acts chapter 15, when Peter has that vision of, of all those foods forbidden in the law, and, and God says, take and eat. And Peter says, it's unclean. And God says, don't, 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 don't call anything I made unclean. Give me the pork chop, the brisket, the shrimp. Well, some of y'all say scrimps. Give me all of it. Everything God made is good. Meant to be received with, notice there, thanksgiving. Now, some things God didn't make. God didn't make kale. We're telling the truth, right? That's made in a laboratory, brother. Y'all, before 15 years ago, y'all never heard of kale. Y'all even stop to think where it came from. Your mama eat greens, your grandmama eat greens, turnip greens, mustard greens, collard greens. Ain't nobody ever heard of kale. I can reject that because God didn't make it. It's made in a laboratory. I see we got some members of the kale lobby in it here. <laughs> but you, but you see you see how you see how subtle and destructive this would be on the church to 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 get us to believe that God doesn't want the best for us that that what we want we we know best for us and to get us to believe either that God is withholding good things from us or that the path to God is to deny the good things that God gives us. You see how this is going to end, not in freedom, not in grace, not in joy. This is going to end in imprisonment. This is going to end in, in binding, and this is going to end uh, in, in sorrow. This is going to end in, in destruction. And, and it begins with, not believing the truth, not knowing the truth, not being thankful for what is good. Earlier this morning, we were confessing our lack of thanksgiving. Maybe, maybe that should be a daily, maybe hourly practice for us because we're so often not thankful, aren't we? Ungrateful. And the enemy will seize upon that. Seize upon ingratitude, seize upon false views of God, seize upon the idea, the wrong idea that God is somehow stingy and holding back all the good stuff from me and try to turn us away from God very slowly, very surely. And that's the effect that false teachers have on the church when they are allowed to thrive and to teach they turn us away from the God who loves us and who has saved us and who is good to us. It begins with our devotion. What are we devoted to? Some people will depart from the faith. Notice number two, though. Some people will enjoy God's blessings. Some people will enjoy God. Look again, verses four and five. The apostle writes there, for everything created by God is good. 
and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. I think there's a, a formula here for staying safe in times of apostasy. I, I think there's a formula here for, for navigating straight through these choppy currents of, of false teaching. Let me, let me give you three things to add and what they equal. A, a true experience of justification, a true experience of justification, plus a good theology of creation, a good theology of creation, plus a faithful practice of sanctification. So justification plus creation plus sanctification equals a solid victory over temptation. A solid victory over temptation. Let me show you where I get that from the, from the scripture. Look there again at the end of verse four, or verse three, excuse me, that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. By those who believe and know the truth. Well, who is that? Well, those are the persons who are justified. Those are the persons who have heard the gospel, believed it to be true, put their hopes in it, and who are following Jesus by faith. See, the truth is we are all sinners, and, and we are all deserving of God's judgment, right? And the truth is our sin has separated us from God. And, and we could die in our sins and forever be separated from God, and we would deserve that because we lived running away from God. But God in his kindness has done something for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. I mean, we really could not do it for ourselves. We couldn't save ourselves. But God saved us. He saved us by sending Jesus, his son, his unique son, into the world to take our place in everything to take our place in righteousness, right? So these folks who are teaching, you got to deny all these things and do all this stuff as a way of, of making yourself right with God, that's the path that's always downhill, always down to hell. No, 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 no. We need a righteousness that's not ours, a righteousness that comes from Jesus, a righteousness that is perfect, a righteousness that is from God, as Romans 1 says, that is by faith. And that's what Jesus does when he comes into the world. That's why he lived so long, right? That's why he didn't just parachute into the world, die on the cross, three days later, rise and call it a wrap. Well, because we owed God righteousness. So he had to live the life that we did not live in order that his life would count as ours. So he supplies our righteousness. Then he pays the penalty for our sins when he dies on the cross. And the father pours out all of his holy anger against the world because of sin. Jesus suffered that. He took that voluntarily out of love so that you and I would not have to suffer that. That's why he dies. He dies for us, beloved. He takes our place and the judgment we deserve. And three days later, God raises him from the grave. This is true. Eyewitnesses saw it. They wrote about it. They died for this truth. And he's coming again to gather his church. And the promise is this. Everyone then who believes this truth and believes it in this way, that it causes them to say no to a life of sin anymore, and to say, yes, Jesus, you are my Lord. You are the Son of God. You are God. And, I, and I'm following you. 
that everyone who does that receives eternal life, complete forgiveness, acceptance with God, a whole kingdom, a heavenly kingdom that will never end. And you get to live in the joy of knowing God personally, both now and forevermore. See, those who know this truth and believe it, God declares to be justified, to be righteous with him, and no longer ever in danger of sin's judgment again. That's the good news that God offers to you this morning. Amen, sis. Amen, sis. Don't let, the, don't let the rocks cry out for you, sis. You go ahead and praise him. This is what Jesus has done for us this morning. And if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, this is what he's done for you. Receive it. Believe the truth. Hope in Jesus. Follow him as your God, and you shall be saved. Now, if you don't, let me put it this way. I don't mean any offense by this. It's just the truth. If you don't believe this, you are already deceived. I'm not trying to be one of those Christians who's confident about everything and self-righteous and judgmental. I know how that sounds. I knew how it sounded to me when I was a Muslim. I knew how it sounded to me when I was uh, bouncing between atheism and agnosticism. I knew how it sounded to me when I was younger and was a Christian in name only, right? Even as a Christian in name only, that sounded offensive. I know how it sounds. I don't, I don't mean to offend you. I mean to help you. If you are right now rejecting Jesus, you are rejecting the truth. You are rejecting the faith. You are already deceived, and you need to be rescued. That only happens if you repent, if you turn around and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So all of the protection we need begins with this gospel. And begins with this faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's the key question. Do, do, do I understand and believe the gospel? Ask yourself that, Christian. Ask yourself that, my friend, who's not yet a Christian. Do I understand what this whole Jesus thing is all about? Why he died? Why he rose from the grave? Why it is I must believe in him? And, and, and do I believe in him? Do I trust him? That's the beginning of your your deliverance. But now, notice the second thing. So we not only want to have this sort of experience of justification, we want a good theology of creation. A good theology of creation. Notice Paul says there, for everything created by God is what? Good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So Paul now has really, in his own mind, gone all the way back to Genesis. It's gone all the way back to the creation account. And he's remembering the, the number of times where God would create on a day, see what he saw uh, created, and say, it is good. And, 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 and Paul is reminding these people who are being deceived into thinking that marriage should be rejected or food should be rejected. It's like, no, 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 no. God created marriage. And God created food. And, and everything God does is good. Everything that God has created is good. We live in a fallen but a good world filled with good blessings from God. And those blessings are meant to be received with thanksgiving. Look over with me in 1 Timothy chapter 6, um, around verse 17. 
Paul is giving the final instructions to the church, some final exhortations. He happens to address the rich here, but it applies to all of us. He says, as for the rich in the present age, charge them not to be haughty or proud, nor to set their hopes on the certainty of riches. Don't be devoted to money. Then he says this, but on God, be devoted to God, who richly provides us with everything. Why? To enjoy enjoy. God is so far from stingy that he's given us everything we have for our joy. I mean, he's so far from being tight-fisted that he's, he's given you life. He's giving you clothing. He's giving you a place to live. He's giving you family. He's giving you friends. He's, he's giving you an education or a, a school to go to. He's giving you a, a neighborhood to be a part of. God has given you everything that you have so you can be happy for your joy. Now, you don't, and I don't deserve it, so we can't demand it. So you hear a preacher tell you, you got to demand, you got to declare and decree and tell God what he's going to do. That preacher going to get you slapped by God. No, 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 we, we're not entitled to it. We don't get to demand it. This is true because of who God is. He is generous. He is good. He is kind. Our lives, beloved, our lives are overflowing with evidences of God's goodness to us. But you know what? If we're not thankful, we don't see it. That's why we're like Israel, being led out of Egypt through the wilderness, all the while grumbling. God said, you know what? I tell you what, I'll send you manna every morning. You ain't got to go to the grocery store. I'm going to just drop it on the ground. You pick what you need for that day. Don't worry about it. I got you. Grumbling. I'm, I'm tired of eating manna. God said, you know what? You know what? You know what? Cool. Quail. Quail. I'm going to give you more quail than you can stand eating. You're going to be sick from eating so much quail. Quail's just dropping down. Ain't nobody stopped to think, man, this is crazy. Nobody stopped to wonder at how great God is. They like, man, I'm tired of eating quail. We should have stayed in Egypt. We had so much in Egypt. We like that. We like that. We're just walking through life, blessing after blessing, goodness after goodness, kindness after kindness. But in our worst moments, we don't even notice them because we're not thankful. Everything you have, God has given to you for your joy because he's a father who wants his children to be happy. He's good, beloved. And so we need a good theology of creation, that the creation is good, that God made it, everything he made is good, and everything he made and gave to us is for our enjoyment. Yes, in a fallen world, our enjoyment gets interrupted. Yes, in a fallen world, there are bad things that happen to us. No doubt, but even the patient with a serious disease, in this country at least, is often blessed with great medical care. That's the goodness of God. Even the person who doesn't have the spouse that they want to have, isn't married yet, is, is set in a family, in God's family, with tons of brothers and sisters in the Lord for, for fellowship and comfort. Even the person ain't got no money. I ain't had no money since my kids went to college. 
somehow I keep eating. I keep putting all that high priced gas in the car, right? Keep paying bills. God is good, y'all. God is good. That's our confession. So receive God's creation with thanksgiving. Just, just ask yourself the two questions. Did God create this? Because if God created this, good. And I shall remind you, he did not create kale. Secondly, <laughs> ask yourself, am I properly thankful to God for this? Am I properly thankful to God for this? Because as long as we are giving thanks to God, we will be hard to draw away from God. Here's the last thing to see here. Here's our playbook, last part of our playbook. Sanctify everything with the word of God in prayer. See it there in verse five. Paul says that everything God made is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Don't turn away God's blessings if you're thankful. If you're thankful, take his blessings. Verse five, why? For it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. Now, there are a couple things that Paul could have in mind here when he said it's made holy by the word of God. He could mean, thinking about the creation back in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, that God's own word in calling into existence and pronouncing that is good has sanctified it, has made it holy in that way. Or he could mean that by our use of the word, by our remembering God's goodness from the word and our praying uh, God's word, praying these truths, we sanctify these things as good. And maybe some combination of these things. But here, verse 5 ends really calling us, in, in one sense, to be devoted to lives of thanksgiving and prayer, of sanctifying everything with the word of God in prayer, testing whether or not that thing that appears to be a blessing really is a blessing according to God's word. And if so, giving thanks and accepting it if not rejecting it. One of the most basic, one of the most important, one of the most lifelong skills Christians need to have is the ability to live according to God's word. It's how we sanctify things according to the word. It's how we know whether or not something is God's will for our life. She shows up in your life. She's very attractive. She's very intelligent. You like her for a lot of good reasons. She doesn't know Jesus. Is that God's will for your life? No. You can't sanctify that with all the prayer in the world. When God has called us not to be unequally yoked, when God has called us to be, uh, in that sense, a picture of the gospel, of the church's marriage to Christ, how... How can a Muslim, how can an atheist, how can a Jehovah's Witness, how can someone, some non-Christian be your head or be your body if you're picturing a relationship with Christ? It's just simply living by the word, right? Should, 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 we, should we make this particular expenditure? It's a gorgeous car. It's a beautiful house. It's a lovely jacket. And for 400 payments of $13.99 a month, it can be yours. Is that God's will for your life? When he says the borrower would be a slave to the lender, when, when he tells us that we should not live beyond our means, right? When you had a choice of making that $13.99 a month payment on that blouse 
or given to that missionary who's back home trying to raise funds so he could be full-time on the mission field to tell people about Jesus? Where does the Bible put your priority? Right? So we want to sanctify our whole life by the word of God and by prayer, by talking to God, seeking God, fellowshipping with God. In the end, God saves us, not just so that we would enjoy the things that we created. He saves us so that we would enjoy him. Prayer is one way we get to do that, to come into his presence and enjoy him. And people who enjoy their God cannot be swayed away to false gods by false teachers and lying spirits. You want to be sure that you will finish the Christian race and not depart the faith? Enjoy God. Enjoy God and enjoy him forever. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word and for what you've given us in your word. We thank you for its warnings and we thank you for its blessings. We pray, O oh Lord, as a people, that you would keep us all, one and all, from straying from the faith. Lord, it grieves us to think of brothers and sisters who once worshiped with us right here in this assembly, who have, Lord, by appearances turned away. It grieves us to hear of Christian hip-hop artists who once taught us so much about the faith in their lyrics. Oh, to hear, oh Lord, that they have rejected the faith. They have believed the lies of demons and have become proud in their own minds about what's right and left you. It grieves us to hear of preachers, Lord, who once taught us so much from the scriptures, swerving away, wandering away into vain discussions, teaching false things, oh Lord, shipwrecking their faith, being handed over to Satan to learn not to blaspheme. It grieves us. It grieves us. And we are reminded that apart from your grace, that could be us. So graciously, lovingly, mercifully, Lord, keep us in the faith. Keep us, Lord, close to Jesus, filled with your spirit. Keep us active, Lord, in the fellowship of your people. Keep us pressing into godliness and and keep us enjoying you, tasting and seeing that you are good. Let that really be our experience, Lord. We plead with you to keep us because we know we cannot keep ourselves. We are so prone to wander. So him writer says, Lord, we feel it, prone to leave the God we love. And so we pray with the hymn writer, here's our heart, Lord, take and seal it, seal it to, seal it within thy courts above. Do this for every believer this morning and all of us together in Jesus' name. Amen.